0: Hi everyone, and welcome back to the Better Way podcast brought to you by RNG Insights Lab. This is a curiosity podcast where we often ask, there has to be a better way, right? There just has to be. I'm Zach Kosalia, the co-founder of RNG Insights Lab, and I'm here as always with my co-host and senior advisor at The Lab, Hui Chen. Today, we are continuing our discussion with Benjamin Van Roy, a professor of law and society and the director of research at the School of Law at the University of Amsterdam. We're going to talk more about Benjamin's book, The Behavioral Code, which was published in 2021. Let's jump right back in. We've talked a bit about some of the ways in which we can reject more reductionist approaches to measuring culture and kind of doing a scan of an organization developing better data to help us understand what the culture is. But I guess this may be a very simplistic question. Can we actually change the culture?
1: It's it's really hard. What we know in the literature, you need a major shock. So you need an unfreezing of what is. That's one part. The other part is you may need to let a, a, a bunch of people go. But that's a much harder thing. I'm not sure we understand how to go from toxic or negative or whatever we want to call it to positive, because one of the hardest things about a negative culture is that people don't believe leaders. They have little trust in rules. They have little trust in each other. They don't dare to speak out. Trying to change all of that is a lot, because even getting people to own up that something is amiss and feeling safe that, that this is now changing. Those conversations only start, I think, if prosecutors start forcing them.
2: So, Benjamin, let me catch you there about having prosecutors force corporate changes. And this is one of the things that make me crazy, um, that I do not believe as a former prosecutor, it's the prosecutor's job to tell companies how to run businesses and I it also drives me crazy when people who claim that they're doing ethics, meaning that they're supposed to be driven what by what you know by a certain set of values, are in fact driven by what law enforcement wants, um, which are two different things. To me, if you're ethics driven, it's intrinsic. But if you're always looking to the prosecutors, you're it's externality that's driving you. Are there studies that link the toxic culture? to lack of productivity and efficiency or other outcomes that corporations and shareholders care about?
1: Here's the problem. So the three cases we discuss in the book, and I won't go into names, they've all been major. Major cases, um, major liability, major fines, major deferred prosecution agreements. I think some people went to jail. If you look in the aftermath of these three cases, one was a bank, one was an automobile company, and the other was a, a an oil company, they all were fine.
2: Exactly. They all came out ahead.
1: The reason I talk about prosecutors is I could see that if they put a little bit of pressure towards really addressing issues that are deeper in organizations, that may be an extra start of this intrinsic exchange. But it will never be a real intrinsic. So you're right in that. And the best companies, organizations would do so regardless of the liability aspect. One of the things that has, that has influenced me is that my dad was a the second lawyer in a large um, international oil company. And he used to do trainings with the board on long-term view, which he did in the 1990s. And he did that from a compliance perspective, which I thought was pretty smart or, or uh, already at the time. So I do think once you... Bringing this longer term view, a lot of issues with ethics and compliance that are externalities become more easily seen as part of benefits and costs. Not all of them, but more easily. And the shorter time frame you have, the more external they are. So I think making it intrinsic starts with that conversation. Unfortunately, I don't think there's an easy win-win where having a, um, a, a more compliant organization automatically means that. That we have evidence that it will become a a more profitable organization. To have a more ethical organization, you need to have realistic targets. Most successful organizations have unrealistic targets. That makes them successful.
2: Absolutely. And, and, And I would say this is one of the many, you know, some people's argument that a compliant company is necessarily not an innovative company, because a lot of companies, you know, they precisely have become successful. Because they pursue the impossible.
1: Exactly. Yeah. So, so the conversation going. I would have with yeah. those companies is, look, great that you have have ambitious targets, but do you realize the risk of having them? Because the second step is, if you have unrealistic targets, do you have enough space for people lower in the organization to talk back about them? So if you have unrealistic targets, but people don't feel safe to speak out when things go wrong, you have a recipe for disaster.
2: So on that first point, and I'm really thinking about also the first um, characteristic uh, trait that you identified in terms of uh, toxic culture, right? The just get it done culture. Um, I recently heard a relatively small financial services firm's CEO. and, And really this was shocking to me because I've always been looking for business leaders who would say things like this. And this came to me completely out of the blue. Somebody else was on a business discussion panel with him. And uh, he said, he apparently started his remark by saying, he was not there to talk about compliance. This is the business board. Uh, but the first thing he said was, would you drive a Ferrari if it had no brakes? Um, and uh, he said, to me, regulations and compliance allow me to take more risks because if I know they exist, they, I know they would stop me when I have to be stopped. And and, and which I, I thought was fascinating. I was, you know, I really, I was thrilled to hear a business leader talk about that. So, so on the one hand, you're, you're looking at, you know, I'm looking at your list of the, 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 the traits of the toxic organization. Some of them I think can exist so long as we're looking at them from this complexity view that they, exist, but alongside other things that may be able to Contain them, but other elements that you talk about, I have to say, from a common sense perspective, I gotta think they're they have to also produce better organizations. So, for example, the ability to speak up, because you want people to speak up not when there is misconduct. You want them to speak up when something is not working well with the business, right?
1: Hundred percent. So I've done quite a lot of research about empowerment and legal empowerment. (laughs) Okay. And I've done a paper with Gary Gray from the University of Victoria, where we looked at all kinds of situations where uh, citizens, either as neighbors or as employees, uh, played regulatory roles in oversight over companies. And we looked at if you give people rights to speak out, but they are not empowered to speak out, that that doubly undermines their ability to speak out and makes them often co-liable for when things go wrong. And to really get people to be able to speak out often means something that most businesses don't like. It means a form of employee empowerment that at least what I've seen in the US, for instance, if you look at, 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 at worker representation or other things, it's just a big no-no. And I think without that, so even if you could make the argument that it would make the organization better, I mean, we all know governments that don't allow for anybody to speak against them, how bad their policies become. And at some point that can happen in organizations as well.
0: I challenge the idea that you can't be both an innovative organization and a compliant one. I don't think that those things are fundamentally at odds. I think it really underscores the complexity of these realities, which is that an organization can be many things is multifaceted. And sometimes the things that define the organization can be seemingly at odds you know there's a lot of talk about what it means to be an innovative culture and and there's there's some really great thinking out there around how innovative cultures have a tolerance for failure um but they also have an intolerance for incompetence yep it's okay to be willing to fail but it's not okay to be incompetent and those two things might seem like they're at odds but they're not and i think it's the same when it comes to to compliance you can be as you said ambitious you can be you can shoot for the moon and at the same time choose integrity yes and there's tension all right uh, the last thing I want us to talk about is the behavior code itself yeah I mean the book is incredible but it ends with this very practical framework that folks can take away and so I'd like to talk about that if we could just walk through the six steps Uh, of the behavior code. So step one is to ask what variation is there in the unwanted behavior? Tell us a little bit more about what a practitioner can do uh, to start this analysis.
1: Yeah. So the the simplest analogy would be, um, let's say you are a practitioner and you're supposed to produce murder. I mean, this is not something that most people in corporate practice do, but then you have to realize there's such a massive difference between a passion killing and a hired hitman. I mean, this is a sort of analogy that any sort of negative conduct that has maybe one legal category may have very large differences. And you first need to group them. you first need to say, okay, for instance, what I mentioned earlier about bribery, there may be really big differences in the type and, and reasons bribery occur. And you want to group them differently. Um, so that's step one. It's just understanding what your problem is. And I, as I mentioned earlier today, there may be a step zero. Just first of all, defining, okay, which are the problems that you're going to focus on? Because you can't focus on all the problems.
0: Yeah. So once we've done that, step two is how does the behavior work?
1: Yep. So that's a really important step because it is about understanding what are the narrative necessary elements for the bad behavior. And once you understand sort of the how of the behavior... You can develop a really different type of intervention, one that doesn't try and influence the motivation, but that tries to reduce the opportunity for something. So we have many examples in the book. I mean, uh, 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 ranging from how in England they reduced um, uh, stabbings using beer glasses, where they found out, okay people actually stabbed each other because they could break a glass and stab each other. So they changed the glasses so they become unbreakable. How um, how sort of mo- how sort of money laundering or, or or use of cash funds to pay for criminal activity has been reduced by getting rid of big of big denomination bills. There's so many uh, sort of these simple interventions that start by understanding okay what is the full chain that made the behavior possible, and then which part of this chain can we take out at the lowest cost to make the behavior more difficult or even impossible. that's where we say we should start because it's the most effective way of course the book does describe that in some instances this may not be desirable because people want to have freedom to make decisions
0: right so we start by defining the behavior and the variations we then move on to understanding how it works in an effort to ultimately make it more difficult for that behavior to materialize and then step three is what do people need in order to refrain from the behavior yes what do people need
1: so this is all what we call the capacity approach so here a basic thing that organizations should do is to sort of understand okay has the has the behavior been enshrined in rules and do people need to understand these rules in order to refrain from the behavior and do they actually understand these rules um then once you find out they may not understand these rules are there ways in which we can still get the rules to be sort of brought to them without them having to um, to memorize or understand them. Sometimes, for instance, in software packages, you may install the rules already so that they don't need to know the rules themselves. Um, there, there may be certain technical abilities people need to follow the rules. We need to understand, do they, do people have them? So this is typically the types of things where you say, okay, how can I support people? Sometimes that may be through training. Sometimes that may be more through factual things, to getting people the necessary funds or other things that they need. Um, And here you may also find maybe, okay, some of these rules may not be practicable at all. You may find here, well, I cannot make it impossible for people to to, um, do the bad behavior, but I also cannot make it possible to refrain from it. And Then you can at least see that you have a higher risk there. And we have this step first, because it doesn't make sense, for instance, to start threatening or punishing people who are unable to follow the rules anyway. Right. So you first right. need to, them to be able to follow them before you try and incentivize it.
0: Absolutely. And, and and which then leads into step four, which is a question that I think many of us who have been practitioners often ask, which is, do people think the rules, the rule makers and the rule enforcers are legitimate?
1: Yeah. This comes out of this whole work we discuss about procedural justice. So, if people think the rules are not legitimate, they're less likely to follow them. The intervention here is to really think about: okay, can we involve people more in the making and enforcing of rules? Are we are they treated with respect? Do they have input? Do they have account? And are 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 the people who make and enforce the rules themselves acting in a way that's neutral? So these are sort of the, the the sort of broader things. The reason we put this here in the middle is that this really shapes voluntary compliance mm-hmm. or it can undermine it. So if you don't have that sort of basic trust in the rules, it's going to be very hard to force people in it. And if you force people into compliance, then that doesn't mean that they're going to stick to it. So it stays very extrinsic. And this is where you can keep it intrinsic. So this is just the sort of thing that you want to address and prevent um as much as you can the problem is of course for organizations a lot of these rules come from outside and the the legitimacy of these rules is not something that the organization internally controls
0: which leads us to step five which I I think isn't asked enough uh, (laughs) but bringing us into the world of really the complexity of it all and the culture uh, step five is what role do morals and social norms play
1: yep And this is an important one. It it, it sort of shows you on the one end what you're stacked up against and also what you may have in your corner. So to give a simple example, five cities in the Netherlands this um, New Year's banned the uh, personal um, uh, use of fireworks. People could still buy them everywhere. So what happens, the social norm and the moral norm with a large amount of the population including in these cities was still fireworks is fine so everybody fired fireworks which is a really negative thing not just for compliance with those rules but compliance with any governmental rules because everybody can hear the violations in those cities it's it's one of those violations that's so clear for everybody so you have a social norm that is stacked against you have a moral norm that's stacked against it if you then bring a rule into that environment you have to, first of all, really wonder, should I bring that rule now and do, and do it in a partial way where we're, where we're not decreasing the opportunity? Because very likely you're going to keep having violations. Second, if it's stacked against you, you need a complete different type of uh, communication about it. So the Dutch news and the police and everybody said, oh, everybody was breaking the rules in those cities afterwards. By saying that, they've actually strengthened this negative norm What they could have done, we described this in the book, they could have focused on the few people in those cities who complied. They could have also said there is a growing amount of people who are complying with the new rules, and they were happy with it. I'm not saying that will be the game changer, but at least it doesn't make things worse. We have a lot of examples in the chapter about the book, about how to do this. The other way around is is if you have a situation where a a lot of people are already following the rules, try not to undermine those people by bringing by bringing in extrinsic motivations there's quite some research that shows that you may be eroding sort of the the existing powers that support the rules so you need to know this context moral and social context because it may aid you but it may also come against you and the way you can harness it better is through having good good forms of communication
0: which leads us to step six which we've already talked quite a bit about step six is how do incentives and extrinsic motivations factor in.
1: Yep. So and we've symbolically put this last because most lawyers start here. And it's sort of, I mean, first of all, it says these things do matter. It's not that they don't matter. They do matter. But you only get to them once you know all these other things, then you really understand the real incentives that you understand how these incentives are linked to the opportunities capacities people have how they're linked to the legitimacy and the social norms and the morals so that's how that's why we've put them last but they're not least one of the things that i
0: love about the code uh, is it seems to me really difficult to answer these questions if you are a practitioner if you are a compliance officer (laughs) without actually engaging with the people who are gonna be subject to these rules. And I feel like that's often a step in the process that's missed. We've got well-meaning, really smart compliance officers and lawyers who sit in a room and come up with the rules and design the program. And you talk about this in the book, what is the value of actually reaching out and engaging with the people or with employees more broadly?
1: Yeah, no, that's exactly it. I mean, I've been in those rooms in my own organization where I'm also a compliance officer. I mean, I'm in charge of the ethics of research. And we talk so much about people. And this is one of the things I learned really early on in my research in China. When I moved from studying the enforcement officials to going to the companies and then going to the farmers next to the companies and learning from the farmers next to companies what was happening in the companies, I changed my perception completely. And I remember when I traveled back to Beijing to the national lawmakers and the national level enforcement officials, I found, wow, this bottom-up view, they, they had none of that. That meant they they also didn't really know how their rules played out or didn't play out. And, and I think that's the core thing that I do in my work, also in my current teaching. I tell these first-year law students, look, you've learned a little bit about law now. And when you study law, you get these blinders on. And that's also the power. My job is for you to take them off a little bit and to see humans again. Because everybody was born as a human, raised as a human. Everybody's gone through behavioral modification. Everybody's been socialized. We all understand this stuff, even if we don't know the science. It's just that once we got these legal glasses on, we sort of, I mean, filter all that out. So, so what I'm really saying is that we need to combine these legal analysis, which is not going to go anywhere. We need it with the human analysis. I think that's the core of it.
0: I think that's such a great place for us to actually pause uh, and to begin to wrap up so that we can take our own sort of glasses, our goggles off and not just see you, Benjamin, as lawyer, and author, and legal scholar, but to see you as a person. And so at the end of each of our podcast episodes, we have a a Proust questionnaire inspired by James Lipton and inside the Actor studio inspired by Vanity Fair and and, and a whole bunch of others. So we have some questions for you just to get to know you a little bit better. And Huey, I'm going to hand it over to you to get us kicked off.
2: I I do want to say, Benjamin, we could be talking for the next 25 hours. um, (laughs) You you don't know how many times uh, as as we talk, the tangents that are, you know, my mind certainly has gone like, oh, pick up this question here we could go down. So, so appreciate your joining us. And uh, Mm -hmm. I I hope this is certainly the first of many um, of our collaborations and your appearance. So let's get to know you a little more. here, the first question is choose one of two. So you can answer one of two questions. The first first of the two options is, if you could wake up tomorrow having gained any one quality or ability, what would it be? Or you could answer, is there a quality about yourself you're currently working to improve? If so, what?
1: Yeah. So. My my first gut reaction is to pick the first question, okay, and to say I would love to wake up tomorrow and to be able to play jazz piano, and I've um, been studying that, but it's so very very hard. But I guess the deeper sort of answer would be patience. Um, yeah. If if I could improve one thing on myself, it's just to be much more patient with myself and with others. Um, I think a lot of good comes out of being patient. <laughs> It's
0: certainly
2: uh, one of those qualities that I wish I had, too. Um,
0: <laughs> well, my answer to that question, Benjamin, is the ability to manipulate time, which then sort of solves the patient's problem.
1: Oh, yes. 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 Well, I kept my... Um... My answer in the realm of reality, Mm. even though me being able to play jazz piano very well (laughs) is sort of like you wanting to be able to stretch time.
2: (laughs) My my answer to that, Benjamin, was more like your jazz piano question. I want to be an opera singer.
1: See, so we could do jazz opera. (laughs)
2: There there we go. All right. The next one is also choose one of two. Who is your favorite mentor or who do you wish you could be mentored by?
1: Yeah, I, I, I would pick my favorite mentor, um, and I probably have to mention two, sorry. So one is is Professor Jerry Cohen at NYU. I think he's turning 92 this year. And Jerry is somebody who, uh, I mean, he, he he studied law, clerked for two Supreme Court justices in the, I think, late 50s, early 60s, and then took this really weird decision to become a specialist on Chinese law, in the 1960s, mm-hmm. where nobody was studying this, and he has been a pillar in the field. But what really has been amazing about him is that he's always been open and welcoming to young scholars. And he's meant the world to me when I started out. I didn't come from his group, uh, but we ended up teaching together in 2000, uh, 2011 when he was 80, and it was just wonderful being together with with somebody who's so knowledgeable and fun and uh, inspiring to so many people both in Taiwan and the mainland and the other is Professor Robert Kagan from uh, who used to teach at UC Berkeley and Harvard and he is just one of the pillars in regulatory studies somebody who really inspired me early on in my sort of road towards understanding um regulation and compliance and he again was somebody I emailed I emailed him out of the blue when my my PhD was nearly finished and he was just so welcoming, we met in Berkeley. And ever since he's been somebody who's shaped my mind, for instance, he showed me the difference between lumpers and splitters. So a lumper is somebody who who takes a complex problem and throws it on top of each other and finds the answer is two. And the splitter, I'm clearly a splitter, takes something that looks simple and opens it up and finds that the answer is actually very complex. so uh, yeah, they're both really good mentors.
2: Well, thank you for sharing those, and and just uh, just also hearing the the reasons why um, you chose them to to name here, or were also just uh, very special to hear. Yeah. Uh, what is the best job, paid or unpaid, that you have ever had?
1: My current job.
2: <laughs> oh.
1: Yeah, I just love my job. I love being able to teach in the field I do, train young researchers, but also have all these interactions with people in practice. And uh, yeah, And, and I enjoy now being back also in the Netherlands. And Amsterdam is, of course, the nicest city to work in. So, yeah. Wow.
2: What a blessing.
1: Yeah.
2: Next question is, what is your favorite thing to do?
1: So many favorite things, but I would just say, and you're going to find me really weird. I like running at the moment, (laughs) Uh, but especially running out in nature. So I go running a lot in the dunes where you can go off the path and there's just a lot of deer and other animals. And we go there really early. And that's just been, been one of the things I've really enjoyed since COVID. Nice.
2: Yeah. What is your favorite place?
1: Yeah. That's a tough one. There's so many favorite places. I mean, it may be because I haven't been in China for a long time that I'm gonna answer right now with Kunming, which is a city I've spent a lot of time in. I mean, look, I I could also answer my current home, which I love as well. Uh, I love Amsterdam, I love New York, but I'm just gonna say Kunming for now, just because of the food, the people that I know, there, the people that I like and that I miss.
2: Next question is, what makes you proud?
1: I think my family makes me proud. I mean, I think that's the thing. My kids, my wife, going through this journey together where the kids are growing up and seeing that they're landing. I think that's a sort of pride that is so different from work-related pride or other things.
2: Now, the next question takes us from the the profound to the more mundane. What email sign-off do you use most frequently?
1: I'm really boring with my email sign-offs. I normally say best regards.
2: (laughs) Okay. What trend in your field is most overrated?
1: I would have to say nudge, if I'm honest. Uh, And I say that because the word itself has so many different meanings. I don't think there is something that you can call nudge. So so if somebody says, oh, we're going to use a nudge. I mean, I'm immediately thinking, is that a prime? Is that a social norm intervention? Is that situational? Is it a towards um, architecture intervention? Those are completely different things. And I think it's also in line with what I said earlier, that sort of the simplistic thinking that comes out of the promise of an idea like nudge. I mean, a lot of the things that are in that book are really inspirational and really great, but I don't know how to apply them to the problems that I'm fo- focused on. Industrial pollution, uh, major corruption, uh, major misconduct, violence. I don't know really how to use sort of the, the the sort of really soft touch only and 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 win-win if we do A, we get everything becomes better. So that's why I would mention nudge.
2: Completely agree. Last question. What word would you use to describe your day so far?
1: Inspiring, mostly because of the podcast.
2: That's wonderful. We feel the same way.
1: We do. We
0: that's do. Great. Benjamin, thank you so much for joining us. Hopefully you will come back because there is so much more to talk about. For those listening, again, the book is The Behavioral Code, The Hidden Ways the Law Makes Us Better or Worse by Benjamin Van Roy and Adam Fine. You've given us so many better ways and so much to think about, Benjamin. Thank you very much. Thank you all for tuning in to the Better Way podcast and exploring all of these better ways with us. For more information about this or anything else that's happening with RNG Insights Lab, please visit our website at www.ropesgray.com slash Lab. You can also subscribe to this series wherever you regularly listen to podcasts, including on Apple, Google, and Spotify. And if you have thoughts about what we talked about today, the work the lab does, or just have ideas for better ways we should explore, please don't hesitate to reach out. We'd love to hear from you. Thanks again for listening.